You are listening to the Missions History Podcast, brought to you by the International Mission Board. On this episode, hosts David Brady and Scott Peterson are joined by David Gasperson, pastor of Warsaw Baptist Church in Warsaw, North Carolina. Listen in as they discuss the history of missions in Nigeria and the role of one particular family, the Powells, with a combined 87 years of experience working there for the sake of the gospel. This is Missions History Podcast. MHP is a ministry of the International Mission Board. I'm David Brady, and my co-host is Scott Peterson. And today we're very excited to have a special guest with us that will be talking about uh, one family of Southern Baptist missionaries. And so, Scott, would you please introduce um, our guest for today's episode? Certainly, David. Thank you. Um, Our guest today is a pastor of Warsaw Baptist Church in Warsaw, North Carolina, David, we're very glad to have you today, and uh, we want to start by letting you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Thank you, Scott. It's so good to be with you today. I'm a native of Asheville, North Carolina, and I grew up in that area and went to college at Mars Hill, now Mars Hill University, and from there to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm a graduate there in 1977 with my Master of Divinity and then with a Ph.D. Uh, I came to know the Lord very early on as a nine-year-old boy and was uh, called to preach when I was 15. After graduating from seminary, I went on to serve uh, churches in South Florida and also concurrently uh, served as a founding professor uh, professor of theology and later on as academic dean of an interdenominational seminary in Miami uh, called the Florida Center for Theological Studies. I was there until uh, 2006, and at that time I returned to North Carolina, serving a church in Jacksonville, North Carolina, down east, and then in 2013 to Warsaw Baptist Church. When you got to Warsaw, you made some interesting discoveries there at the church itself. What were those? Well, one of the first things that I discovered is that the church fellowship hall was named after missionaries. It is named Powell Hall. And in uh, that fellowship hall, there is a dedication wall that has three oil paintings on it. It is husband, wife, and daughter. And these three family members, I discovered, had served as Southern Baptist missionaries in Nigeria for a collective 87 years. Wow. Uh, the church also had a history room dedicated to the Powells, and in that history room were a lot of mementos as well as books and uh, 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 just personal items from the Powell family. That's a very rare thing to find a history room dedicated to a particular missionary family within the church. Uh, it was as though uh, the Lord was speaking to me again about the importance and the centrality of mission. Yeah, and David, what you have done in uh, taking those materials and the other materials we'll talk about in a minute and putting this into a story, um, this is exactly what Scott and I are praying that will happen because many churches have missionaries that are connected to their congregation. Maybe they can't write a full-length biography, but they could write you know, pamphlets, they could retell those stories. And so you've done uh, at a local level what we really would like to see replicated over and over again throughout our convention. I think that that would be a great new calling for Southern Baptists 
as you were speaking, I was thinking about how in the past we have done mega efforts at preserving church histories and done a lot of work to make sure that church histories were preserved. But we ought to be doing just as much work to make sure that the work of a missionary are preserved for future generations. You are preaching to the choir, David Gasperson. <laughs> you are you've got Scott is in here throwing his hands up and we're just like, yes, he's saying he we're just saying amen to you. So but as you got there to Warsaw and began pastoring the church, how did you discover that actually one of those missionaries is actually still connected to your church? Isn't that right? Indeed. By the time I arrived in Warsaw, Mary Hester Powell had already uh, left the town and had settled into life in a retirement community in Greenville, North Carolina. And uh, uh, at that time, this was five years ago, she was already 91 years old. Wow. But still very alert, uh, very conversational, and very much beloved in this church because after returning from the mission field, she had served in this church as a Sunday school teacher. And uh, in WMU, just everything you can imagine on the local church scene. And uh, and many remembered not only her work in the church, but also remembered her dad and mother after they returned from the field. So you mentioned Mary Hester, and I don't think we've actually brought in the names of mom and dad yet. So tell us uh, their names, and then we'll kind of get into their story a little bit. Uh, where they served, and um, then we've also mentioned now the daughter, Mary Hester. Yes, uh, J.C., uh, Julius Carlisle Powell, uh, it was a descendant of a Powell family that had uh, been in this area, has been in this area for many generations, going back well before the Civil War. Uh, a strong Baptist family, his dad had uh, had been a deacon, uh, a large family, 12, uh, 12 in the family. He was one of 12 siblings. And he married uh, Rosa Hocutt. And the Hocutt family came out of uh, the Burgall, North Carolina area. And that was also a very strong Baptist family. Her dad, although he had never been highly educated, he indeed was an ordained Baptist pastor who traveled around uh, originally on horseback and did what he could uh, in preaching in the Wilmington Association. These two families were strong in their Baptist commitment and in their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, when J.C. and Rosa were married, then uh, they served uh, their entire missionary career in Nigeria. And their daughter, their only, their only daughter, their only child, Mary Hester Powell, was born in Nigeria, uh, grew up uh, both in Nigeria and in the United States, and then returned to Nigeria as a missionary nurse. You made another discovery in Warsaw uh, that led to additional information about this family, and I think, at least in our conversations, created even a greater interest and a desire to to write this book and to learn more about this family you did. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? My wife and I acquired an old house in Warsaw, and it is sort of a hobby of mine to rehab a house every now and then. It has been a a hobby and an avocation of mine for a good number of years. And this was at the behest of the town manager who said, this house has been standing derelict for a long time and somebody needs to do something with it. It was a huge, and is a huge two-story house that was built in 1909. And uh, we bought the house with existing contents, and there was a lot of contents, (laughs) most of it trash. Oh my! And as we waited in, it was not until we waited in that I made the connection that this was actually the Powell House. 
This was a house that J.C. Powell's dad had had built. Uh, It was just hard for me to deny that the Lord had placed me at the right place at the right time and with the right collection of resources to do uh, this biography. As we began to clear out the Powell house, we found that we had a lot of materials that existed nowhere else. As I began to accumulate so much material from this old house, I began to think, you know, this is a prime opportunity where we have a wealth of resources, and not every missionary will leave us a a wealth of resources like this. This is a primary opportunity to show what this particular couple and their daughter did, but also the life of missionaries and something about their calling. Um, David, one of the things that I want to ask, because I, I, I pastor in small town, uh, North Carolina, is sort of a question that you ask in the beginning about J.C. Powell, and that is, how does a country boy become a missionary? This was a farm boy and a farm girl who grew up and met each other in school. And um, uh, just like any other farm children uh, in eastern North Carolina or anywhere else across the country. But what set them apart is that from an early age, they had a unique experience with Jesus Christ Yes, and sensed the calling of God upon their lives. And they took that seriously. Uh, And that is the key to any Christian service is being astute and listening when God calls. But their calling did not spring full, full grown. Uh, all at once. They went through months and even years of searching, soul searching and prayer uh, before they were clearly convinced that God not only was calling them, uh, but J.C. Powell, from the, from the time he accepted the call to missions, he knew he was only going to Africa. Yeah. God had clearly called him to one geographical area. His call was very specific. That's not always the case. Many people uh, uh, I know give a very, uh, they, get, they receive a much more general call from God, and it is changed from time to time during the course of their lives. But for J.C. and Rosa Powell, and later uh, for, for Mary Hester, it was always one country, one mission field, um, one continent, always only Africa. Um, well, you mentioned a little bit about their context or as far as their time frame, but we're essentially talking from about 1890 to, uh, in J.C.'s case, to about the 1970s and Rosa about the 1980s. Is that right? That's correct. And uh, both of them, uh, they graduated high school, high school in 1912, and uh, J.C. graduated Wake Forest College in 1916 and Rosa from Meredith in 1917. So that gives us a lot. And, and they were commissioned in 1919 and made it to the field the first time in 1920. So um, tell us a little bit about Rosa and, and Carlisle's courtship and what makes that so unique. Well, they, uh, in, in those days, the local schools were usually one-room affairs. This is in the, and uh, so they both began their education in little one-room schoolhouses. But both knew early on they were going to go to college. And they were both boarding students. They both, you know, they had some classes together and that sort of thing. Uh, from the time he laid eyes on Rosa, J.C. Powell just, was just in love with her. Mm. But Rosa, not so much. J.C. was a very demonstrative guy, always uh, uh, very dramatic, uh, lots of words. And Rosa was just quiet and a little bit turned inward. And quite honestly, 
he was scandalous to her, just the way mm-hmm. he behaved. But as they went through Dell School, and both of them were graduates uh, of Dell School in 1912, they did become friends. Carlisle wanted it to be more than friends from the very beginning. And finally, he convinced Rosa to let him write her while they were in college. And But she would agree to it only under the understanding that they were only friends. Well, now, he went off to Wake Forest and she to Merida. But for the whole college career, he was in love with her, but she really wanted nothing more than friendship. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, I did discover that early on in her college career at Merida, she was telling people that she was going to be a pastor's wife. Hmm. And so even though she was outwardly putting him off, I, I guess I'll never know. I'm not sure anybody knows now, but I think she might have been uh, a little more touched by the young man than she would admit. He ended up at uh, Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, and she was teaching school back at Dell School. Uh, and and he, he kept writing her and insisting that they needed to be together. But in in fact, one time from the seminary, he wrote her a 15-page letter. And in the middle of that letter, and the letter was about everything you could imagine, in, a, in, in the middle of that letter, in a paragraph by itself, he had seven words that just he intended to stand out, all in caps. He wrote, my love I give, yours I seek. He went on to tell when he wrote his daughter about this years, years later, describing their romance. He said for three weeks that he had he would get letters from her, but she would never mention what he had said, and it was driving him crazy. And finally, there came a 15-page letter back from Rosa, and in the middle, in a paragraph to itself, itself was five words, my love I give unreservedly. Wow. And uh, J.C. Powell would later write uh, to Mary Hester talking about her mom and dad's romance, he would say that was the extent of our romance. Twelve words. Twelve words. <laughs> that was the extent of our the extent of our courtship. Oh, I love but it. But from that point on, they knew they were going to be together. And so, they were for the rest of their lives. I love that story. And so tell us a little bit about the beginning of their work in Nigeria. Their first trip to Nigeria was in nineteen twenty. Originally they had intended to go in nineteen nineteen. They were married in nineteen nineteen. And uh, they had been commissioned in 1919. In fact, when they got married, everyone knew they were going to be missionaries in Nigeria. And uh, they were married in the little one-room church uh, building that she'd grown up in. But it had uh, two aisles in it and two outside doors. And the newspaper accounts of the wedding said that they, uh, the bride entered one door, and over that door was marked America. And the couple exited another door, and over that was marked uh, Africa. They were delayed in their departure, as often happened because of transportation uh, uh, ocean liner schedules, until 1920. So they arrived in Nigeria in 1920, and, and Nigeria in those days, it was very much a developing country. Uh, we are more used today uh, to recognizing Nigeria as an emerging nation in, in Africa. and. Uh, 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 very far advanced in so many ways. That was not the case in 1920. And uh, they were not stationed in Lagos, uh, the, the coastal town. They were in the interior towns. Um, and that was where work was still quite new. Um, one of the tasks that J.C. Powell undertook 
uh, was construction of churches and schools. He was actually leading workers to build these churches. And over the course of his first several uh, uh, terms in uh, Nigeria, he gathered, he, he, he received the name of Master Builder. Uh, and uh, the family back home and even his colleagues in the mission field in Nigeria recognized that he was doing more in building churches and schools and mission houses uh, than probably anyone else. Mm. And uh, it is widely rumored that he built as many as 50 churches. Uh, he did so with uh, national uh, help. That is, that uh, uh, Native Nigerians were part of his work crew. He brought in some building techniques from uh, the United States, but they were not in any way uh, uh, anything more than rudimentary. Uh, for instance, uh, it was said that he introduced the plumb bob to Nigeria. Wow. <laughs> that no okay. one was using a plumb bob in Nigeria before J.C. Powell got there with one. They would build the walls out of mud, uh, mud walls with uh, wooden tin roofs. That was the way they built most of their churches and, and buildings. They were substantial enough that they would last a, a generation or at least a decade, but then eventually they'd need to be replaced. And the point was by then, the local churches would be strong enough to where they could replace it with a more permanent structure. So this is the 1920s. Um, our mission efforts in the early 20s are starting to expand. Um, there is great hope with the 75 million campaign that we're going to be able to really um, expand our mission efforts. Uh, but what what begins to happen uh, toward the end of the 20s that really is going to change the focus of the Powell's ministry? Well, that's one thing about the Powell's uh, mission work. When they come in the 20s, it's the best of times. Right. Uh, over and over, I found letters being exchanged between Richmond and and, and uh, J.C. Powell. J.C. Powell would write and request uh, uh, large budgets for the building of churches and the hiring of national staff. And uh, over and over, it would come back from the executive secretary, everything has been approved. Wow. Uh, and that happened throughout most of the 20s. Mm-hmm. But uh, with the coming of the Great Depression, Right. Uh, the crash of the stock market in 1929 and then the grueling depression years of the 1930s, all that changed. Right. Uh, ultimately, Southern Baptists fell short of the total 75 million and churches back home began to have, uh, have to dial back on everything they were giving. And there was not as much money coming into the foreign mission board. So the mission board was in a terrible situation because they had taken on a great many new mission responsibilities uh, in the 1920s because everything was just booming. And now they had all of these missionaries and all these missions to support, but found it extremely hard to do so. As a result, uh, there was a time in in 1932-33 when Carlisle and Rosa found themselves at home on furlough and unable to get back to Africa. Charles Madry, another North Carolina native, in his autobiography, tells the story about the Powells. See, that's the first place I ever heard of them, that they, along with another a number of other missionaries, some missionaries were forced into an early retirement, but others were just sort of stranded in the United States with no ability to get back to their field of service. But he tells the story of the Powells, which is what I want you to tell, because theirs is a, a neat story of how God made a way and how they just wouldn't give up on their calling. 
what happened? They they went through their regular furlough year, and then it came time for them to come back, and it was delayed and then delayed again. And uh, uh, T.B. Ray was uh, executive uh, 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 secretary at that time, and then was later Madry took over. And uh, finally, they they were just told, uh, we can't send you back right now. We do not have enough money to buy your ocean liner tickets to go back to Africa. Uh, that that blows our mind in the in the 21st century when we're used to larger mission budgets, but it was that bad. So how did they how did they get back? Well, what what happened? Uh, eventually, uh, uh, it goes back and forth. Powell would go out; people would offer to give him little bits of money. He could not directly ask for money, but if they gave it through the, the foreign mission board, that was okay by uh, CP guidelines. And eventually, as best I can tell, uh, a a good Baptist woman underwrote their ocean liner ticket. But she did so not by giving them money or not because they specifically asked her for money. She did so by uh, by corresponding with the Foreign Mission Board and saying, I want to send you the money to send the pals back to Nigeria. And that's what happened. Yeah, that's that's how I heard the, the story from uh, Charles Madre's book is that the money went straight straight to him and he just couldn't he couldn't say no because they hadn't asked for it. It had come unsolicited, um, but he was right. able to send them back. Um, and David, indeed, and that was in compliance with CP guidelines. That's so, right. You know, they, but, but, but the key to it, and I was impressed about this, that when it was the worst of worst times, the Foreign Mission Board stayed true to the cooperative program agreement. That's right. And, you know, it was the worst of, of times. The, the Foreign Mission Board was over $1.2 million in debt, which in the early 1930s was, it was almost enough to sink um, our mission board and God right. in his providence used Charles Madry and, and just Southern Baptists as we slowly were climbing out of that depression and, and several other just sort of miraculous things uh, to be able by the forties that the debt was retired. And um, you know, but it's a good thing for us to remember uh, because it's not just something that happened in the 1930s, but I mean, you know, in just recent years, we've had to uh, bring, you know, ask some of our missionaries if God was calling them home because financial times, they go up, they go down. And we just need to see, though, that um, the the call of God and the commission of Christ never ends, whether it's good times uh, financially or bad times financially. We just we press on with with what we can do uh, at that particular time. David, in your book, after they return to Nigeria, you tell of some events that happened in in 1938, and you've already told us a little bit about J.C.'s work in building churches and and the construction, but I don't want our listeners to to get a a false or an incomplete impression of what he did, because you tell about him going out with national pastors, national preachers, holding revival services um, just town by town, village by village, church by church. And one of the things that they have to face are some issues from the surrounding culture that have crept in or that have been hard to eradicate from uh, the culture and from the the lives of those Christians. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about that? Well, one of the things that uh, uh, all Southern Baptist missionaries had encountered in that part of Africa and in Nigeria uh, was polygamy. 
and that was simply an accepted cultural practice within Nigeria. Uh, when missionaries came, with almost no exceptions, they said, this is not biblical, and this is not moral by Bible standards. Uh, and as they begin to preach the importance of uh, monogamy, uh, sometimes uh, the nationals within Nigeria would say, well, now this is a cultural thing. And uh, we, we don't think that you should make this a requirement to have only one wife, that that should not be a requirement for Christian service or to be baptized or to receive the Lord's Supper. And uh, J.C. Powell was very insistent that the, the Bible was clear, that, that, that monogamy was important, and that it was a moral issue. Uh, and he continued throughout his life to be very strong on that issue. As a station missionary, he was not only building buildings, but he was advising and consulting and preaching, working with those uh, national pastors, uh, himself evangelizing. And uh, one of the most uh, exciting pictures I have of him is of him baptizing in the river. And, and sometimes in the worst of times, he would write back to Richmond and talk about, you know, how there's no money for doing things. And then almost as a side, he would say, uh, but we still baptize 30 or we baptize 40, you know, this, right. this past week or this month. The baptisms just continued to mount. And what we see is that Nigeria moved during that period, the 20s, 30s, and 40s, from being the very resistant mission field that it had been under Bowen and those after him to being a very open mission field where hundreds and then thousands of people responded to the gospel. David, during their career, an important worldwide event took place. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened to the PALs during the Second World War? Well, even even before the United States entered the war, uh, the North Atlantic had become a very dangerous place uh, to cross. Uh, it was filled with German raiders and U-boats, and of course the British uh, Navy had a great presence there. And uh, there were many parts of the North Atlantic that were war zones. And as a result of that, it was harder to get ocean liners crossing on ocean liners. Uh, so when missionaries came home on furlough, they sometimes had a little trouble getting back simply because it was hard to find passage. From 1940 to 1941, uh, J.C. and Rosa were in the United States on furlough. And uh, Carlisle Powell got the word from Nigeria that because uh, of a vacancy that had suddenly occurred, he was needed back in country. So they asked him to come back to help fill uh, this vacancy. He was able to arrange transport on a cattle, <laughs> on a cattle boat, if you can imagine. Wow. Uh, for himself. But Rosa ended up having to stay behind for a few days until they could arrange crossage on another liner. At that time, Mary Hester was still in the United States in school. So uh, Rosa eventually arranged uh, passage on the Zamzam. Uh, and it was an Egyptian registered ocean liner. Uh, but it had originally been under the British Admiralty. But it was it was a neutral boat, and it was under Egyptian registry. And they left uh, Hoboken, New Jersey, on March 20th, 1941. Uh, to avoid uh, the war zones, they sailed south and made a stop at Recife, Brazil. After they left uh, from Recife, uh, Rosa actually wrote some uh, a couple of letters that were posted after they left port, uh, uh, the, the liner had left them behind to be posted, and she talked about boring things, how nothing much had happened on, on the trip, uh, complained a little bit about the ocean liner itself, but everything was going 
very smoothly. In fact, it was a rather boring trip. Not far from Recife, Brazil, uh, they were discovered by a German raider. There were uh, the raider began to fire on them, and they fired a total of 55 shots, nine of which hit the Zamzam. And this was in the early morning hours. So the lifeboats were damaged. So the passengers were all evacuated from the ship into lifeboats, but some of them ended in, in the water because the lifeboats were no longer seaworthy. It so happened that because of the complaints of one passenger that there weren't enough life jackets, that they had been required to put more life jackets on before they left the United States. But it might have been a very tragic thing. All the passengers, almost all the passengers were missionaries from a variety of denominations. Three of them Southern Baptists, a lot of them Lutheran, and all of them were on their way back to Africa. Uh, so uh, the passengers and the crew were all taken aboard the German Raider, and that was turned and, and later on transferred to a, a, a transport ship, which really became a prison ship for them. And uh, the fact was that uh, the, the German captain had thought he was firing on a British warship. Uh, and very apologetic when he found out that he had mostly missionaries and a totally uh, non-combatant uh, ship that he had damaged and finally sank. But the German uh, naval command had a terrible crisis on their hands because, and they didn't know what to do with them. So really, the uh, survivors were on this German transport boat in the middle of the Atlantic, basically going in circles until the German command figured out what to do. Uh, and nothing had been released about the sinking. All that the people knew in the United States and in Africa was that the ship was missing. Now, Carlisle was already in Nigeria, and Mary Hester was at Mars Hill College for the summer, so uh, they didn't know what had happened except that Rosa had not gotten back to Africa. And the longer it went, uh, the more nervous they became about it. Finally, the Germans uh, uh, disembarked their passengers in German-occupied France, and there they told them that the men would be interred, which means concentration camp, especially non-Americans, and uh, the women uh, would be returned and repatriated. About the time they were landed in France, the Germans also released uh, news information indicating that the Zamzam had been sunk and uh, that the passengers and crew had survived. Ultimately, only one of the passengers died from injuries received in the attack. Uh, the family history said Rosa was the last of the passengers to leave the Zamzam. Uh, they were in France for a while, then they were land transported across Spain and Portugal, and uh, then they sailed back to New York. But for several weeks there, this little family of three were on three different continents wow. and could not get to each other. And that that's a very dramatic story of how World War II uh, invaded the life of these Southern Baptist missionaries. I, I think this is, I, I one day Scott and I were talking and he said, of course, you know the story of the Zamzam. And I'm like, I have no idea. I've never heard the story of the Zamzam. And he began to tell me a little bit about it. And then the inner intersection with the Powell's life. Um, I think that um, a lot of the survivors of this, this must have been a very defining event in their life, because uh, as I understand it, they continued to have reunions until not too long ago. That's right. They had uh, uh, reunions every several years uh, until just a few years ago when finally there were so few left uh, that they stopped having those reunions. And when I was doing research for the biography, I was still able to find 
uh, the survivor's website. It was still up and functioning and probably will be for a while. I think what was so significant, and several of the Lutheran missionaries wrote uh, accounts of it, they were amazed because, again, as I said, there are no happenstances, there are no accidents. And they were amazed that although the German raider fired on them, only nine shots hit. Uh, Of those nine shots, no one was immediately killed. And eventually only one passenger died. None of the missionaries were even injured. (laughs) And and ultimately, all were able to return. There are just many, many miracles that were in that uh, situation, which could have been totally otherwise. Well, David, we've we've talked quite a bit about uh, J.C. and Rosa's life and ministry, but one of the kind of the catalysts to this project was the, you know, your relationship with Mary Hester, and we've talked a little bit about her. Uh, tell us something about uh, her calling to missions and, and how that transpired and where she served and a little bit more about her life. Mary Hester was actually born in Nigeria. Uh, she was the first white child that had ever been born in that particular tribe. And uh, she just she talks about it, and, and her parents talked about it, how uh, the, the people were used to seeing adult white people, but it was a fascination to see a baby. And uh, so she, she grew up, the first nine years of her life were there in Nigeria, uh, went to missionary schools and the like. Her experience of salvation came early on. But at nine years old, uh, while they were home on furlough, uh, her parents gave her the choice of whether she would go back to Nigeria and continue her education there or whether she would remain in the United States and, and do her education. And she chose to stay in the United States. Now, it made all the difference that she had two strong families. Both sides of her, her mother's family and her, and her dad's family both were, uh, and they were reasonably close geographically. There were many members of the family. She had all kinds of support here. So she finished her education here going on, uh, as uh, first of all, to high school at Boys Creek, which would later become Campbell University, and then uh, to Merida after college. And uh, very early on, all the way through, she was very intense and focused on doing what the Lord would have in her life. Uh, At first, she became a teacher, uh, like her mother before her and uh, taught for a while in Kinston, North Carolina. But she pretty soon found out teaching was not for her. And uh, in some summer experiences in a doctor's office where she was a receptionist and secretary, she realized that nursing was the right place. She had always considered nursing to be an alternative to teaching. So she went back, this time to Johns Hopkins uh, School of Nursing, and became a nurse. As she was finishing up her nurse training, she began to correspond with the Farm Mission Board about the possibility of going as a missionary nurse, uh, preferably to Nigeria. And, of course, there was then and continued to be for many, many years a great need uh, for missionary nurses. There there was just a shortage. Uh, So ultimately, and it took a long time for her to reach the decision to become a missionary. She first started out uh, with a a temporary contract, and then it was regularized as uh, as a regular missionary. And uh, she served... uh, uh, for 13 years as a missionary in Nigeria. David, what was it that ultimately led Mary Hester to make the decision to leave the field? Well, uh, there, there was health problems among the uh, the grandmothers, for one thing, and the aunts back home. But when her parents had to return home because of J.C. declining health, 
this became a real strong issue for Mary Hester. And uh, they returned, in fact, uh, even in the 1940s, uh, uh, the executive secretary treasurer began, began to say, you know, you really need to start thinking about retiring, saying this to J.C. Powell, to Carlisle Powell. Uh, he had begun to having all kinds of health problems. Um, perhaps some of it connected with the, uh, the climate in Nigeria at that time and some of the things that he had to go through. But it was just simply that he was getting to the point where he did not have the uh, the uh, strength to continue on in the field. So uh, they retired, Rosa and Carlisle, in uh, 1956. They moved back to Warsaw, North Carolina. And uh, uh, Mary Hester continued on in her service uh, until finally in the 1960s. And uh, uh, she returned home to care for her, help care for her dad and take some of the burden off of her mother. And that was a very hard decision for her to make and a very hard decision for them to accept because they wanted her to be on that field as long as she possibly could. Yeah, no, I I appreciate you telling that part of the story because those are the kind of decisions that our missionaries face um, all the time, that being torn between uh, the work that you feel called to do there, but also uh, to honor your father and mother, and and she was an only child. So, uh, But one thing, there was a time after um, Carlisle and Rosa retired that they were able to return to Nigeria. Would you tell us a little bit about that and its connection to the independence of Nigeria from Great Britain? Indeed. Uh, Nigeria became an independent nation in 1960, and uh, Rosa and Carlisle Powell had been retired at that point for about four years. Uh, But it was interesting that in the western uh, section of Nigeria, uh, political leadership rested on the back of a man who had been trained in Southern Baptist schools, and he had grown up among the missionaries. And he very well knew the importance, uh, the important role the missionaries had played in the development of an independent Nigeria. He extended an invitation to selective missionaries to come as guests of the government uh, to the celebration of independence. And Rosa and Carlisle Powell were among those that received a special invitation to come to Nigeria to celebrate the independence. Tell us a little bit about just uh, what kind of church member was he in those final years? Uh, well, uh, of course, as, uh, as his health permitted, they did indeed uh, go around to churches and talk about missions in Nigeria. And uh, there were times when he was strong enough to do that, especially in the early years of his retirement. Uh, nevertheless, they found out that their world uh, sort of closed in uh, around Warsaw because of his health situation. And for long periods of time, he was confined to a wheelchair and virtually an invalid toward the end. Uh, but it meant that they ended up doing their uh, their Christian service here at Warsaw Baptist Church, which is where uh, they became, uh, uh, they were local celebrities, but they were also beloved members. And uh, his fellowship with other men in the church uh, was something that stood out. And there are still men around who remember uh, those experiences with him, even though it was a long time ago. And then, of course, Rosa and and Mary Hester uh, worked with the mission group. But they they did have contact with other churches a great deal as they had opportunity. It was just that health limited them in their travel. You you know, and I I love the fact we mentioned earlier that— Mary Hester said, no, I, my dad didn't write. But I mean, she could not have been 
um, more uninformed about about the fact because this man he wrote a lot of stuff. Well, I think I think the fact of the matter was that it had left her mind, but uh, some of the manuscripts that he wrote actually grew out of things he said to her in letters. Right. I mentioned earlier the Impressions of Nigeria book. He had actually written a lot of that to her in letters in the 1930s, right? Um, and included part of it. I found that there was not only a manuscript, but he had also written it to her in in uh, in letters. Uh, so uh, the fact that she did not remember manuscripts, she had kept them. They were in her personal belongings. So clearly, at one point, she knew. She knew. But she uh, had no memory of him, and they had not been published. And uh, he, he, the devotionals that he wrote, he he had them published in the local paper, oh. and he would do a daily devotional in just about every issue of the week. Of, 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 well, when the daily paper, it was a weekly paper. Uh, it would always carry one of his devotionals, and that went on for a long time in the 1960s. And I I loved so many of the things. I you know early in the book you talk about um, about JC's colloquial speech. <laughs> and um, I, I love that. But, but you know, that really comes through because, you know, um, it connects with the common person. I love in that um, one devotional where he calls, um, is not this the son of the joiner? And then he says, Jesus was also the son of the great joiner, one who spliced heaven and earth together in peace and love and mutual understanding. And and I love just how uh, graphic an image that was, you know, with his building background to think of uh, of the ministry of, of, well, God's work and also through Christ in um, connecting uh, earth to heaven again. I love that one too. I thought that was a an important contribution, and that's why I included that one in the biography as a sample of his writing. But speaking of his colloquialism, I know when I read a an early draft, early manuscript of your book, there was a quote where he is writing Mary Hester and he's talking about that he has um, been in the hospital, but he doesn't refer to it as a hospital. And I thought maybe you had a typo in there. What does he call that? Joking around. Yes, Mary he, call, he called that the hospital, but uh, that was not simply a colloquialism. Uh, one of the things that he and Mary Hester shared back and forth by letters was an ongoing uh, line of nonsense. When Rosa wrote, it was very prim and proper letters telling exactly what had gone on. When J.C. Powell wrote his daughter back in the United States, he went on with some kind of nonsense all the time. It was a way, I believe, of lessening the tension of the fact that they were separated and the worry that each had for the other being separated by such distance. Uh, There was one letter I came across, several of them, where he would start a letter off, Dear Chicken Gizzard. Oh, and my goodness. <laughs> it was just that kind of nonsense that would go on. He would do that intentionally to make her laugh. And it produced a strong bond between her and her dad, even though they were continents apart. Yeah, no, I love that. And one of the things that we've we've discovered in reading and learning about missionaries and doing a, these series of podcasts is that many of our missionaries uh, had a sense of humor and, and it comes through in their letters. and especially letters to friends and family where they carried on. And to me, we often, we think of missionaries as heroes and rightly so, but we have an impression of them that they must always be serious. And we, we forget that they're humans and they have emotions and they have doubts and fears and 
and a sense of humor. And I love seeing that as we read those letters. And in reality, it is that sense of humor and those very human elements that endears, endears them to the uh, nationals where they serve. That's right. uh, because after all, what missionaries do is the same thing that all Christians need to do, and that is to be Christ incarnate to the world. And, uh, and, and so when they see a very real man, a very real woman, very much like themselves in so many ways, except that they have this unique relationship with God, uh, that's part of what creates the hunger in people to know Jesus. And, and I, uh, so we want to be real. And that's true not only of missionaries, but I think of every Christian as well. That's absolutely right. And I think, too, I appreciate the fact that you you bring these elements of their lives out in the book, because as people read it, they can say, oh, th- those are those missionaries are people just like me. Mm-hmm. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe I can be a missionary or maybe I can minister to other people because they have the same characteristics and qualities that I have. And so. I really appreciate the fact that you've drawn that out. And if I might add, uh, you know, uh, uh, writing about a period of time in the early 20th century, this century is so different. And and in some ways, mission work is so different today than it was 100 years ago. But when you read accounts, you begin to realize that everything changes and yet nothing changes. Right, <laughs> right. Um, the, 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 basic, the calling is still the same. The needs of the people are still the same. And even though most of our missionaries may be working in developed areas now rather than developing areas, the geography changes, the surroundings change, uh, but, but the need for the missionary remains. And that's what I hope uh, the 21st century reader will get out of it. Um, and 20th century missionaries have something to say to 20th, 21st century Christians. Oh, that's well, well said, David. And that's one of the things I want to ask you. What are some ways you've grown through this process? Well, uh, I said to Mary Hester Powell recently when I presented her a copy of the biography, uh, who would have thought uh, that a 66-year-old pastor who had been a pastor for 40 years would have a life-changing experience mm. by encountering missionary. Uh, but this really has been a life-enriching, and I dare even to say a life-changing event. Uh, it has certainly deepened my experience of Christ, and it's been refreshing. And maybe that's what I need after 40 years of pastoral ministry is a refresher course on just why we're doing this. You yes. know, uh, uh, just remind me again uh, the the intensity of the call that I felt uh, low these many years ago. In my case, 51 years ago. Now that I was called to preach, uh, it is a reminder. You know, because we share those callings, we share those experiences of the Lord being very real and very substantive in our lives and very direct on what he wants us to do. And uh, that's true no matter what century and uh, no matter what context. I love one of the um, articles that um, JC wrote. It was called Jesus, a man among men and the savior of men. And you have a quote in there (laughs) from that article and speaking about Jesus as the savior of men, Carlisle says, I accept it with my whole heart and believe it with my whole mind, and am willing to live my life in any kind of circumstances to convince men of its truth. And I love that quote, and I just think that that's, um, that's the missionary spirit I want to live in my heart. I, I hear it um, beating in your heart, David, and um, we just want to encourage our listeners uh, to wherever they are in their walk with the Lord to just refresh that uh, 
that sense of calling and being ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Indeed. And if I could just uh, uh, conclude by saying, let's tell the stories of those missionaries, because in telling their stories, we tell the story of Jesus among people. Scott, this has just been a great episode, hasn't it? It's It's been fantastic. And of course, I've been a part of this journey almost from the beginning, along with David here, and uh, just continue to be amazed at the things that he has uncovered and found in the life of the pals and was so excited to see this work published and look forward to seeing more of the materials published that uh, David has told us about. And I know that JC wrote some uh, commentaries on the New Testament as well. And um, uh, David, uh, hopefully you'll be working on those as well, and we'll see more and more published as a result of your efforts. Hopefully so. They, they deserve to see the light of day, and they lift high the name of Jesus. Thank you for the involvement in the podcast. I've enjoyed it. Well, David, thank you for, for being with us. And uh, this is MHP, Missions History Podcast. I'm David Brady, and my co-host is Scott Peterson. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, God bless. You have been listening to Missions History Podcast, a production of the International Mission Board. Join hosts David Brady and Scott Peterson each week as they discuss significant people, places, and events from the history of international missions. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes.